Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Chapter 6. We will get through this. Someday. Yeah. No, it's just some good stuff here in Romans chapter 6. And I think we left off right around verse 7 last time. Um, and again, the whole idea of Romans 6 here is identification. We're in Christ. And uh, because we're in Christ, we're identified with Him. And we talk about how in the New Testament, really, this idea of being in Christ is one of the major themes of who we are. Um, if you ask, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who's in Christ. All right? And it's this identification with Christ that gives us our hope, gives us our eternal hope that we have, and gives us victory over sin and over everything. One of the interesting things, if you go through the New Testament, there's a lot of sin words, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, S-Y-N. And um, in Greek, the S-Y-N is with. It means with. And Paul actually uses this a lot. We're with him in death. We're with him here. We're with him there. And Paul actually makes up words somehow at times to show how we're, we're connected with Christ. We're in him. And Romans 6 is really one of those chapters that really focuses in on what does it mean to be in Christ. And We've talked about this in verse 5, where we're united with him in his death. So when Christ died, since we were with him, when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose again, we rose again. And because we're in him, this is how this, why this works for us. And here's the question, what is the penalty of sin? Death. Did we die? With Christ yes we did we died with Christ we we're buried with Christ we rose again with Christ for it says in verse 7 he who has died has been justified from sin freed from sin where here's the question the penalty of the law says you shall die right the soul that sinneth it shall die we satisfy the law in the sense that we died with Christ the fact we rose again with him, well, that's, that's the bonus on top of it. The law no longer has any claim on us. And it says in verse 6, going back, knowing this, know this, get this in your head, that our old man was crucified with him. What does it mean, our old man? That is our identification with who? Our old man is identified with, chapter 5, Adam. Who's our new man identified with? Jesus Christ. So our old man, our old identification, our own way of life is dead. It's not dying. It's dead. We've been crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be done away with. What's the body of sin do you think he's talking about? Huh? You. Body of sin. Our identification with Adam has been broken. We died with Christ. We're no longer identified with Adam. And because of that, the result is that someday the body of sin will what? 
be destroyed. Someday we will get a new body. Someday we won't be able to sin. But the reason that's coming is because we are identified with Christ. That allows us to have this coming body that is no longer under sin. And it says there then, because it's destroyed, we're no longer slaves to sin. What does it mean to be a slave to sin? You have to do it. As a Christian, do you have to sin? You don't. You don't have to. That's the wonder of it. Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do anything. You decide to do it on your own. We don't have to sin. We're not a slave to sin. We're not subject to the mastery of sin because, see, the sin has mastery over the old nature, the old man. That's dead. We're now new creations in Christ. Now, we're going to struggle with the body of sin, right? That's what he's going to be talking about here coming up. But remember, our old man is gone. And then in verse 6, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. In the original language, there's different conditional statements. There's a, there's a condition called a first-class conditional, which says, if this is true, this will be true. It's a, it's, a sta it's a statement of fact. Second class is a statement contrary to fact. The third class is a state of possibility. What do you think conditional statement this is? First one. Since you died with Christ, and this is very clear in the Greek text, the, the, the construction is, if you died and you did, all right, that's not, it's not if you died and maybe you did. It's if you died and you did die, you will live with him. Since you died with him. Since we are identified with Christ and we died with Christ in his death, because of that, since that has happened, we believe we shall also live with him. Because he lives. All right? And the idea of believe there is get it in your head. Get this, get this thought in your, eye, in your head. You're identified with Christ. You died with him. Now you're going to live with him. And in verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead is never to die again. Death has no dominion over him. Christ died. He rose again. He paid the penalty for sin. He's never going to die again. So if he never dies again and we're with him, what happens to us? We're never going to die again, right? Understand how he's trying to get this thought of identification with Christ across. You died with Christ. You're buried with Christ. You rose again with Christ. Know now death, and by death there it doesn't mean physical death, right? Because we're all going to face that. But eternal death, no longer, you're not, you, that doesn't have any more claim on you. You'll never die eternally, ever. We live with him. And why do we need to die physically? Well, we need to get rid of the body of sin, right? We're still looking at our own. But what's going to happen? We know that that's going to be done away with. He's raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
why is death no longer a master over Christ? Other than the obvious, he's the son of God, he rose again. But what is the penalty of, of sin? All right, so if you died, penalty paid, claim is over, right? You follow? He doesn't sin. So the point is, he paid the penalty for sin, death. Sin no longer has any claim on Christ or on us in the eternal sense of the word. Why? Because we're in Christ. Death no longer has, is a master. It means to lord over. Death no longer lords over Christ. Now, did Christ, if Christ did not take upon sin of the world, he would never die, right? Because he'd never sinned. But he died because he took upon himself, what? The sin of the world. And when he took upon himself the sin of the world, he became sin for us. Now, understand, that does not mean in essence he became sin, right? Can he in essence become sin? No, he can't. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like what happened in the Old Testament when the um, lamb was brought on the Day of Atonement and the priest laid his hands on the lamb. The lamb didn't become sinful. In essence, the lamb didn't become sinful. But it carried the sin of the of the people. That the, the God had took the, the sin of the people and sort of put it on the lamb, and the lamb carried that sin out into the wilderness. You know, and the other one was killed for, you know, to take the, the sacrifice of the sin. And that's what it means. It, it it's not that because again, Christ is infinite God. He can't, in essence, become sin, right? Now that's what uh, some people out on the TV tell you that. The word of faith people say, Christ became evil. No, he can't become evil. But he can take upon himself the sin of the world and pay that sin. And he did. And that's what it means that he took it. He's, and when he died, he, we were sort of there with him, and our, our, all of our sins were on him. And when he died, he paid the full penalty for all of those Sin. He took our place. And see that, again, that goes back to one of the most important theological concepts that's really under attack today. And that is the whole substitutionary atonement. What does the substitutionary atonement mean? Christ took my place. Alright? He did not die as a good model for me. He did not die as an example. He did not die to pay off Satan. He died to satisfy the wrath of God. He took my place. And that is the cornerstone of the gospel message. All right? You get rid of that, you don't have a gospel. 
You don't have the good news. You don't have salvation. But yet there are people that say, well, God would never do that. He would never kill his own son for us. Well, what did God say he was going to do? That. God would never, would, that's cosmic child abuse. God would never do that. Wait a minute. Did Christ, was Christ abused on the cross by the Father? Did he go there unwillingly? Of course not. Christ was not dragged to the cross against his will. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he did what? Endured the cross. It wasn't something he did unwillingly. This is the way God did it. And part of, part of the reason here, what happens, I think, a lot of times, is we try to bring our human reasoning in on this stuff and try to figure out why God should or should not do what he does. And the point is, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. If you want to find out what God is or isn't going to do, who do you ask? God, you don't ask yourself, because you'll come up with the wrong answer. The Bible says, Christ took my place. He paid the penalty for me. Instead of the wrath of God falling on me, it fell on him. And by the way, God did not dilute his wrath to, to go easy on the son. People say, well, you know, he must have toned it down a little bit because he liked his son. No, Christ got the full brunt of my sin. It wasn't a watered down kind of thing. What's that? Yeah, Christ said, I'll lay my life down. Yeah, he was not, yeah, he was not forced to the cross against his will. That is heresy. I'm sorry, it is. So that's a part that we may not fully understand. Again, these things 
see a movie or something on how Jesus was was uh, portrayed. We don't fully know what he went through. No. One of the problems I have with a lot of the Easter messages we get is we focus in on the physical suffering of Christ. <clears throat> to be honest, that was not what bothered him. Can you imagine being the sinless son of God, taking upon yourself the sin of the entire world? I can't imagine that. My brain stops thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard enough time dealing with my sin, much less yours and everybody else's. This is why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he kn that's a rhetorical question. Christ knew, but it gives us a glimpse into what was going on there on the cross when the sky was darkened and God turned away from his only son. Christ became sin for us. We died with him. And when he said, Te Telestai, it is finished. It was finished. Verse 10, for this death that he died, he died unto sin once. For all. Hapax. Once. One time. Never to be repeated. A hapax in the Bible is something that only occurs one time. It's only mentioned once. Christ only died once. Not twice. Not three times. He doesn't keep getting re-sacrificed in the Mass like some Catholicism people think. No, died once. Which made it different than the blood of the bull and the goat, right? What happened to the blood of the bulls and the goats? Every year you had to do what? You got to trot out another one. And why is that? Well, it was never meant to permanently take away sin. But Christ won sacrifice for sin forever. Took it away. Gives you an idea of the value of Christ's death. It's an infinite sacrifice. Because he's infinite God. What's that? He took on all the sin of all the men, of all the people who ever lived. All the blood of the bull and goat did was a constant reminder every year that, you know, you got a problem that needs to be dealt with, right? In fact, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was one big picture book. To give you an idea that sin produces death, the animal died. That animal died for you. Imagine Adam and Eve standing there and God slaying a, a lamb and putting, making clothes for them. That's for a freak you out a little bit. Never seeing death before. Knowing that that lamb died for you. He died to sin once. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He died once, but life is a continuing thing, is it not? He died once to sin. Paid the penalty in full. That's sort of an amazing thing. He paid it all. I, I like that, what is that old hymn, Jesus paid it all? I, I, I like it because it doesn't say Jesus paid some. That's what would be a bummer if you paid some of your sin off, didn't it? 
If you owe a billion dollars and somebody says, oh, I'll help you, Here, here's 10 bucks towards the debt. That doesn't help me any, right? Jesus didn't pay some of the debt. He paid all of the debt in full. And how could he do that? Well, he's the infinite son of God. We don't understand that. We're going to spend all of heaven trying to figure that one out and wonder. It says here, he died to sin one time. Every year, the blood of the high priest had to go in year after year and produce, sacrifice another lamb on the Day of Atonement and bring the blood in and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that would cover the sins of the people for one year. God was trying to get them to understand there's a need for a sacrifice, a substitute. But when Christ came and paid the penalty, that was gone. Now there's a permanent payment. And because of that, in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Consider, logizomai, think it through, come to a conclusion. You're dead to sin. How are you dead to sin? You died with Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. See, one of the things, I think as Christians, we get irritated with the unbelievers because we say, what is wrong with those idiots? Why do they keep doing what they're doing? You know why they keep doing what they're doing? They're a slave to sin. They can't help it. They can't help it. But we are dead to sin but we're alive to God. As Christ died, paid the penalty for sin, death no longer has dominion over him. Even so, death no longer has dominion over us. We've been freed from the penalty of that. And because of that, in verse 12, I know we're going along pretty fast here. Don't worry about it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. What's implied in that statement? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. What is implied in that statement? It is. It is. It's every day. But what, what hope do we have in that verse? It's possible. Is God going to tell you to do something that's not possible? Well, I mean be perfect as I am perfect. Well, that's kind of rough to do. But the point is potentially, potentially. Is it possible for us as Christians to not sin? Potentially. Yeah, it is. We got the command right here. Now we understand that, you know, because of the fallen nature, you know, and you're going to see the struggle in Romans 7 where Paul is struggling with sin. We have a struggle. We get that. But here's the point. If you're a Christian, you actually have a Struggle. Do unbelievers struggle with sin? They don't struggle with it, do they? They just do it. Now, they might struggle with the results, you know, they might struggle with penalties and, you know, well, I'm not going to do that because it would hurt if I do that. I don't, you know, that kind of stuff. But as far as them struggling with sin, you don't struggle with sin. If you're an unbeliever, that's part of what you are, right? 
as believers, you struggle with sin. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I don't know if I'm a Christian because I have this constant struggle with sin. It's like, yep, you're a Christian. Why, why, why? I, I thought I don't know. Christians struggle with sin. Unbelievers don't. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it have dominion over your mortal body so that you should obey its desires. Epithumia, the, the lust of the, the body. The, now, by the way, desires, as necessary as you desire sin, necessarily. Desires aren't necessarily sinful, are they? Is it wrong to be thirsty? Is it wrong to be hungry? Is it wrong for a man and a woman to love each other and have kids? No. Desires are okay. It's, it's what you do with the desires that make it sinful, right? Was it wrong for Christ to be hungry when Satan showed up? No. Forty days after not eating, I mean, I... I and by the way, this is interesting. I was just in my lesson last night in my Greek program. There's, there's something called the, um, the accusative of duration. And when it says 40 days and 40 nights, it's talking about the entire 40 days and 40 nights. It's not talking about, well, he ate at night or he, you know, he had a nibble on it. It's a, for 40 days, he didn't eat anything. Now, you go without food for 40 days and see what happens. Some of us can't go 40 minutes without something, you know. Go 40 days. He was weak. It was not wrong for him to be hungry and thirsty. But what was wrong for him to do? Give in to the temptation to bypass God's provision for him. That was what was wrong. Don't go there. Okay. Here's the point with this passage. We have the ability, because we are dead with to sin, we're alive to Christ, we, have, we are in Christ now, we have the ability potentially to not sin. We have that now. Before that, we didn't have that. We couldn't do anything but sin. Now we have the ability. And because of that, Paul is saying, don't allow sin to lord it in your body. So where, where does this sin operate? Where does the principle of sin operate in us? In our body, our physical life, our fallen humanness. We're going to sort all that out in Romans 7 when we get to there whenever. All right? But the point is, you don't have to do this. That you should obey its lust. And so here's the question, you know, and as an aside, James talks about how we sin when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. Remember? Those are two interesting Greek words. One means to bait with a hook. Another means to lure with bait. So say, you know, so we look out in the world and we see a lot of bait out there, don't we? A lot of bait. And what draws us to that bait? Our inward what? Desires is drawn to that bait. Is it wrong to be drawn to the bait necessarily? Nah, that's part of existence, right? There's nothing wrong with it necessarily, but 
when you start trying to say, okay, how do I get there? How do I take care of that? How do I go there? What happens? James says, sin is impregnated in you. That's a, it's a word meaning to impregnate. So if it's impregnated in you, what's going to eventually happen to it? It's going to grow and give birth to sin. James is saying what causes us to sin as believers is we're drawn to the bait and we're, we're enticed and we go for the bait and take a bite. We're hooked. So if you want to have victory over sin, what do you need to be able to do? What should you do? Walk away and don't expose yourself. Really, I mean, it's nothing more godly than that. I mean, you know, there are people who say, well, you know, uh, well, I, I can go there because uh, I'm, you know, I can, I can successfully navigate that particular temptation. Um, it's sort of like saying, you know, yeah, I'll go pet the lion. He ain't going to bite my arm off. Oh, really? How do you know the lion ain't going to bite your arm off? Would any of you go pet? I mean, if you've gone on safari, you know, one of the things I want to do one day is go on these safaris, you know, go see the animals out in the wild, you know, where there's no cages. They have this really neat uh, rail trip you can take in, I think, South Africa, you know, where it goes across South Africa. One of the stops is they take you on a safari out to see the animals and the lions and the tigers and the bears. Well, I don't know if there's bears out there, but, you know, something. But I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, that looks like a pretty, I wonder if that line, I'm going to scratch behind its ears. Someone said you can do that once. Yeah. Um, you don't, what do you do? You don't expose yourself to the doggone thing, right? And yet there are Christians that expose themselves constantly to evil and sin and wonder why they get their arms bitten off. Stay away from it. Turn off the computer if you have problems. Turn off the TV. That's a good one. Turn off the television. By the way, except Perry Mason. I like Perry Mason now. He's sort of fun. But, but the whole point there is turn off the TV. How many shows on TV do you watch that your grandma would come here, she'd turn white? What are you watching that stuff for? But yet we do it. We constantly expose ourselves to the sin. Paul's saying don't let sin reign. The best way to not let sin reign is don't expose yourself to it. And also to do what? Reckon yourselves to be what? Dead to it. I don't have to do that. I don't have to sin. I don't have to fall victim to that. And I think part of our sanctification is just knowing what are our areas of weakness in our sanctification and avoid situations that put us in a problem with that. Just avoid them. Doesn't sound too godly. It sounds more practical, but you know, that's the way it is. Don't go petting the lion and hope you don't bite your arm off. It might just do that. And don't go on, what, presenting your members to sin. How do you present your members to sin? You expose yourself to temptable situations. and you It's like yielding your members. What's the members you think there means? <coughs> members of your members to sin. What do you think he's talking about members there? Your mind, your body, your hands, your feet, your whatever. It's a general term. 
the actual Greek term is just members. It's it's pieces of you. It's whatever you know, whatever that is. You can. It's a broad category. Don't don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That's interesting. As an instrument, if you have trouble with lust, don't watch TV. Don't turn on the computer. If you have trouble with alcohol, don't have a bottle of wine in the fridge. Pick it. If you have trouble with covetousness, don't go to the malls and walk through the clothing department. Avoid this stuff. Don't yield yourself as members to this. And yeah, a lot of times what we do is we yield our members as we expose ourselves to this and we wonder why we're drawn off into this. And before long, we're finding ourselves sinning. It's like, how'd that happen? We just weren't paying attention. Yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. Fill your mind with the good stuff, not the bad stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things I found when I retired is, you know, it's easy to... you got time on your hands now, right? You get yourself into trouble, can't you? So you got to stay busy, like taking hikes and signing up for a master's program in languages or something. Do something like that. I don't know. Pick something. Get yourself busy. Don't, don't sit around all day long watching TV or goofing off or whatever, sitting at the mall or, you know, whatever people do. Get busy. Fill your mind with the positive stuff. And he's saying, don't yield your members, don't yield your bodily members, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your body. Don't, don't yield that as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those that are alive from what? The dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Dedicate your physical body, your, your members to God, not to the sin. Because you're not under that anymore. You don't have to do it. But we get sucked off into it, don't we? In the disciples' prayer, one of the statements of Christ said, and deliver us from the evil one. How do you get delivered from the evil one? Well, let's say you got a lion in the neighborhood. What do you want to do? If you know there's a lion in your neighborhood, what do you do? What's that? You run. Well, what's one thing you do? When, you know, there's a lion in the neighborhood, you know, I got to go outside for something. What are you going to do? Look around. See if he's in the backyard before you go out, right? Watch. What's Peter tell you to do? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring what? Lion. Walks about seeking to eat somebody. He's on the prowl. Be aware. Watch. Think. How many times do we say, no, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to get myself into trouble on that one. I want to avoid that place. I want to avoid that activity. I want to avoid that thing because I'll get myself into trouble if I go that direction. There's a lion waiting to pounce on me. It's just being smart is all it is, folks. It's being smart and thinking about things. What is it that tempts you? What is it that you struggle with? Avoid those things. That, that, that Activate that. Just avoid them. Don't look. Don't touch. Don't be around. Why? Because if you do, you're going to yield your members as what? Instruments of unrighteousness. It's going to, you're going to get sucked into this thing. It's easy to do. 
For sin, listen, sin shall not have mastery over you. Does sin have mastery over us now that we're in Christ? No. In fact, the next section, and we're not going to get to that today, the next section talks about how you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. Pick one. You know, there are a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be a Christian. I'm free to do what I want. Are you? Are you free? Is every, are there human beings who are absolutely free to do anything they want? No, you're not. See, that's one of the things we say, well, you know, you talk to an average person who doesn't know the Lord um, about Christianity, and they say, well, you know, I, I want the freedom to do what I want to do. And my response back, well, that's sort of a yo statement, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that you can make decisions and you can make choices, but you realize the choice, choices that you make are all bad ones. Right? You can make choices, but your choices, and this is, the, this is a theological thing to understand, your choices are limited by your nature, by who you are, right? Do I have the freedom to step outside a spacecraft without a spacesuit? Do I have freedom to do that? Once. But if I do, what happens? I'm dead, right? Because I, 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 don't, I can't do that and live. So nobody would ever think, well, I would never step outside a spaceship without a spacesuit. I would never do that. Why? Because it's not within your nature to live outside of a space capsule without a spacesuit on. The choices you make, every choice that we make, every, every decision we make in life, think about it. When you get up in the morning, every decision you make is bounded by your nature. What do you eat for breakfast? Well, you know, I have a closet and I have some cat food in there. Am I going to eat cat food for breakfast? Now, theoretically, you know, I could probably do that. But point is, I'm not going to eat cat food. I'm not going to eat dog food. What am I going to eat? I'm going to eat stuff that I can eat, right? Could I eat grass? Well, probably, but it ain't going to help me any, right? I'm going to do something that's consistent with my nature. The unbeliever does things consistent with their nature, with who they are. Their nature is corrupt, their nature is evil, so what things are they going to do? Evil things. But what happens when you're in Christ? What do you get? You get a new nature. Now, you have additional choices that you can make. Before you didn't have them, now you do. And what Paul's saying is, now that you have these choices, start making them, not the others. Start making the right choices. You have them now. I told you, if somebody says, you know, Alan, I'll take out the dinner anywhere you want, I'm not going to pick seafood. Theoretically, could I? Yeah. If I tell people if I have to swim for it, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not a seafood person. Now, give me a nice, good steak. I'm at it. I'm, I'm okay. But I'm not going to eat seafood. Why? It's not within my nature to do that. 
we do things consistent with our nature. And what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, you have now a new nature. You're not like the old, you're new now. You can do something different. You can be different. You can, you can now do the right things. See, somebody says, well, you know, I know some unbelievers, and, you know, they do the right things. Yeah, why are they doing those right things? Because they want to honor God? Or they don't want to get caught? Or because it makes them feel good, right? That's the problem with being fallen, is you've always got that little bit of fallenness that just has to come in and ruin the, the recipe, isn't it? No. And see, the thing with God is not just what you do, it's why you do it. See, that's, that's, that's where you get yourself, that's where we get ourselves in the jam. We may do the right thing, but why are you doing that? Why is it that unbelievers do philanthropic acts? Because they want to honor God? Because they like to get their name on a plaque and it makes them feel good. Right. I'm going to get, you know, I got, I got to get in with the big man upstairs. You know, I'll do a few good things and that will take care of the sin I did the other day. It's motivation. And what's interesting is believers now, you can have the right motivations, right? If you love God and you want to honor Him, that motivates your actions to do the right thing. But Paul is saying here, sin shall not have mastery over you. Why? Because you're not under the law but under grace. Now what does it mean you're not under the law but under grace? A lot of debate on that. If you take grace away, you take the cross away, what is the only way back that you have to God? Law. That didn't work, does it? So why are you acting like you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do that, you got to do that? Why? You're under grace. And he's going to develop this concept of under grace in this, in this sense. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the rules take care of themselves. Because you love God, you want to honor Him. Because you want to honor Him, you don't need to be told, hey, if I honor God, I can't have another God before Him. Why would I have another God before Him? I love Him. I don't love the other gods. Right? I'm not going to take His name in vain. I'm not going to presume on His character. I'm going to spend time with Him. The point is, if you love God, allow the rules to take care of themselves. And that's why when, the remember the lawyer that got up and said, Master, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ said, well, what do you think? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. And Christ said, you got the right answer. It wasn't do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. As Christians, we're not under the law as an obligation. We're under grace, but because we're under grace, we want to do the right thing. We love God. We want to honor Him. 
And the motivation completely changes from a legal code to a love for God. No. That's the next question he asked. Shall we continue in sin? You know, here. Um, shall we continue in sin? Because grace may have, you know, um, because we're not under the law, but under grace. Oh, now that you're not under the law, I can just do anything I want? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and the way to to help you on that is, if you love God and you're focused on Him and want to honor Him, a lot of these other things just take care of themselves. It does, because God is asking, "Why do you want to do that? Can I do that, God? Well, why do you want to do that? I don't want to think about that, right? I want I want an answer. I want a yes, no, check the box." And we're very good at making these lists out. That's legalism. But if you love God, and that's what he's trying to get that, <clears throat> because you're under grace now, you've been freed from the power of sin now that you love God. If you love him and focus on loving him, a lot of this other stuff will take care of itself. It will take care of itself. Because you want the motivation goes inside. And that's what it really means in the New Covenant when God says, I'll take my law on the outside and I'll write it on your heart. What, what, what enables us to spend all of eternity and not sin? Because we're going to be so in love with God, the thought of sinning would not even cross our mind as a possibility. Which is sort of a good thing, right? If not, we would find ourselves kicked out of heaven pretty quickly. No. Yeah. What did Christ say? Be holy for I am holy. So you can be holy. Right. 
Right. And you have to grow. That's growth. But here's the point. And, and, and we'll, we'll stop here with this text here. We'll pick up next week in the next section. But we've been identified with Christ. The body of the, our identification with Adam is gone. We're now identified with Christ. That the body of sin that we have, this body may be destroyed someday. There, and in the meantime, what do I not, what I need to do? I can't let sin reign in me. Why? Because I no longer have to do it. I still struggle with it. That's going to be Romans 7 coming up. Yeah, we understand that. But I don't have to. And what's the best way to deal with that? Well, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't expose yourself to temptation. Don't, uh, don't fill your mind with things that cause you trouble. Don't go there because you don't have to anymore. And the best way to do that is if you just love God, a lot of this stuff is going to take care of itself. You don't need the rules if you love God, right? If you love the God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're not going to have God's before him. You're not going to make a graven image. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're going to remember the Sabbath day. You're going to spend time with God. If you love your neighbors yourself, you're not going to kill them. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to lie about them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to bear false witness. You're going to obey your parents. That's all our outflow of things. So that's what we need to think about here. So we'll, we'll stop there. Any questions or comments before we quit? All right. Father, thank you for this day and uh, <clears throat> for this wonderful truth that we're in you. We're in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we died with him. Buried him, he rose again. Sin doesn't have any dominion over us anymore, Father. We sin because we yield to that which we don't have to yield to. Pray that we would think about these things and that we would yield our members as instruments of righteousness, not unrighteousness. And again, thank you for this time and for this text and for what you taught us today. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.